This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. The podcast where we talk to smart people, but not necessarily done by smart people. That is an awesome question. This one goes down probably on one of my top five. Hey, I like nutrition. I like to eat food. This is the coolest thing ever. We're going to do this forever. I wish I paid more attention in that class. You know, I'm going to be honest, I don't understand that. As a man, I just, I don't get it. Welcome to smartpeoplepodcast.com. Hello and welcome to Smart People Podcast, conversations that satisfy your curious mind. I'm John Rojas and this week we have quite the guest on the show. He believes capitalism is broken and makes some pretty damn good arguments to support that. But all is not lost. He believes he has the solution. We'll call it a cure for capitalism. This episode, we welcome world-renowned economist, Dr. Richard Wolff. Dr. Wolff is Professor of Economics Emeritus at the University of Massachusetts Amherst, and he's currently a visiting professor at the New School for Social Research in New York. He's written many books, but the one that Chris focuses on in the interview is Democracy at Work, A Cure for Capitalism. We're going to dive into the episode here in a second, but first I wanted to go over a few housekeeping things. If you're looking to support the show, please don't forget about our Smart People Podcast Amazon link located at smartpeoplepodcast.com slash Amazon. Any purchase you make through that link comes at no cost to you and greatly helps out the show. And if you're looking for other free and easy ways to support the show, you can always head over to iTunes, leave a rating, review, and comment over there. And last but not least, don't forget to check out smartpeoplepodcast.com. All right, that's it for the housekeeping stuff. I won't keep you waiting to hear the interview with Dr. Richard Wolf. Well, Dr. Richard Wolf, we have on the show. Thank you so much for taking time out of what I know is your crazy busy schedule to, to join us on Smart People Podcast. Thank you very much for uh, inviting me. You know, Richard, I have to admit, in doing research, I watched your clip from Bill Maher. I'm a person who, in my graduate student years uh, at the university here in the United States, decided that the capitalist system, which I lived in and grew up in and knew pretty well, was not what my professors basically were trying to tell me it was. It wasn't an engine of progress and it wasn't an engine of efficiency. Uh, it did occasionally achieve progress and efficiency, but it had lots of flaws. And I very quickly noticed that the flaws were something that were swept under the rug. They weren't discussed. They weren't explored. A good number of my teachers wouldn't even admit them. And I found that bizarre and lopsided. And so I became a critic, to make a long story short. And for most of my life, until about five years ago, being a critic meant relatively rare interviews such as this one, relatively rare media invitations. And then in the last five years, 
particularly in the aftermath of the crash of 2008, everything changed. And suddenly I'm running around the country giving talks. I'm, uh, I do a radio show myself, a weekly hour long show that's now on 71 stations across the United States. I mean, everything has changed, such as being invited to Bill Maher and having 97 million people take a look at it. Um, it's a transformation, and I, I won't deny for a minute, I'm enjoying it, to say the least. But yeah. it's a little bit new and a little bit overwhelming how much has changed in how short a time. Right. Well, I got a chance to read your book, the, the new one, Democracy at Work, A Cure for Capitalism. And in doing more research for this, you know, I got to admit, I um I like a lot of what you have to say. I mean, look, my goal in this show is to have really smart people on, not necessarily always agree, but to expand our brain, the, the listeners and mine alike. And I think you propose a lot of interesting things in a time where we are struggling, and that is evidenced by all these interviews and radio shows and best-selling books. So first, let's start here. You mentioned you're a critic. I also read the term Marxist, which kind of raises a lot of hairs, and I personally don't know much about. So could you tell us where that kind of uh, you know definition comes from, people calling you a Marxist, and, and is it right and what it means? Yeah, sure. Um, this is a question I'm asked often. A lot of people are very interested. Here's basically uh, the way it works. The founders of the modern, let's call it the science of economics, the economics profession loves it if you call them a science, uh, the science of economics begins with two great thinkers, Adam Smith and David Ricardo, both as it happens in England, which isn't surprising since modern capitalism had its birth in, in England and spread from there to the rest of Western Europe and then North America and Japan. And to this day, it's become the global system. So the great thinkers who began with it were Adam Smith and David Ricardo. And to this day, students who learn economics, particularly those going on to be teachers, but even other interested people, they read a good bit of Adam Smith and David Ricardo uh, because everything, in a sense, is based on that. But capitalism in those days didn't only have thinkers who thought it was the greatest thing since sliced bread. Like every other institution, like every other system the world has ever seen, it produced people who liked it and celebrated it on the one hand, but it also produced critics, people who found it uh, flawed, who found it inadequate, who thought we could do better uh, on the other hand. And the first great one to come along, who actually uh, comes immediately after Smith and Ricardo, literally 40 years later, um, is Karl Marx a German, not an English person, although he lived most of his adult life in London as a refugee and as, you know, who left his native country, Germany. Um, he was the great critic. And much of what has happened since in the realm of economic analysis has either been very pro-capitalist and then follows Smith, Ricardo, and a whole line of thinkers along those lines, or they have been critics of capitalism people who have found it wanting, inadequate, and they have often been called Marxists because they take their cue, if you like, they take some of their ideas from the writings of this fellow Karl Marx, um, who wrote this enormously important and influential work in the middle of the 19th century. Now, some people use the word Marxist as if you were some brainless robot marching behind Stalin and Mao Zedong, 
that's all nutty stuff that that comes out of the Cold War of that, you know, the thing that we all lived through, at least many of us did from about 1946 uh, to around, well, today, more or less, um, when the great enemy was the Soviet Union and the United States and they went at each other and denounced each other in ways that, as you look back now, are kind of boring and stale. But in those days, if you were a critic of capitalism, the right wing in the United States, the people who loved capitalism, called you names like communist, socialist, Marxist, revolutionary, and 10 other words I can't even remember. Uh, I don't take any of that seriously. For me, I'm perfectly happy if you want to call me a Marxist, so long as we understand it means that I read and studied the work of Karl Marx in the same spirit that anybody who studies anything controversial studies those who like it and those who don't in order to make up your own mind. Mm. I am not going to denounce Marx because he taught me all kinds of things. I'm gonna, not going to say that I believe everything he said. That'd be silly. I don't. But I don't believe anything, everything any individual writer ever wrote. I think we all ought to grow up in the United States, realize we had a very weird period from 1946 to, I don't know, the turn of the century now, uh, be a little bit ashamed of the one-sidedness with which we dealt with these issues, uh, and now have an adult conversation in which we weigh the strengths and weaknesses of capitalism using the great writers, one of whom is Karl Marx, to help us just like we use Adam Smith, David Ricardo, uh, or anyone else who has weighed in and taught us something about these systems that we confront. You mentioned 1946. What, why is that date important? Or why is that year important? Okay, it's absolutely crucial. Uh, and, and here a little reminder to folks of our history. In 1929, the capitalist system, both here in the United States and in much of the rest of the world, collapsed. We call that the Great Depression. It lasted from 1929 to 1941. During that time, tens of millions of people were thrown out of work. A huge number of businesses collapsed, went bankrupt, closed. The level of poverty in this country zoomed. It was terrible. And the only thing that really got us out of it, that put people back to work, was when we took half the unemployed and put them in a uniform and put the other half of the unemployed into the factories to make the uniforms and the guns and the bullets and the ships to fight World War II from roughly 1942 to roughly 1945. When, the, when that was over, we had had an immense period of economic trauma followed by war trauma, 29 to 45, 46. It was a cataclysmic time of trouble for the American people and it had a particular quality that makes 1946 so important. The quality was that the American people reacted in 1929 and the years that followed, uh, particularly during the Great Depression until 41, in a way quite different from the way they reacted since 2008, which is the second major collapse of global capitalism in the last 75 years. In the 1930s, American people got angry and they got desperate. Uh, for example, in 1933, the unemployment rate in the United States, official government rate, was 25%. That's five times worse than it is today, and it's bad today. So I'll give you an idea of the level of suffering. 
Well, the American people did something strange. They decided to make demands on the society to compensate them, to, to offset the awful experience of depression they were going through by providing them with government programs. And the way they thought they could get them was to join three organizations. The first one was something called the Congress of Industrial Organizations, the CIO. That was a, a, a collection of labor unions. The spectacular thing about the 1930s was that millions of Americans joined labor unions, people who had never been in a union before, whose parents had never been in a union. Americans decided that their best bet to get through this awful depression was to join a labor union. And the other organizations people joined, not as many as joined the unions, were two socialist and one communist party. So by the middle of the 1930s or the later 30s, we had a new thing in American history, a very powerful coalition of communists, socialists, and labor unionists. And they went together to the president at that time, a kind of centrist, not all that different, say, from a Clinton or an Obama. And they said to him, you've got to do something for the millions of people that are suffering in this depression. And the unspoken message was, if you don't, we won't vote for you and you won't be president very long. And the socialists and communists chimed in and said, well, if you don't, uh, we'll make a revolution here and uh, that's going to be a serious change. Roosevelt, who came from a very wealthy, well-connected family, called a meeting shortly thereafter with corporation leaders and big wealthy Americans. And he told them what had happened. And he basically said, look, uh, gentlemen, there being very few women in the room, um, I just had this meeting and I think these people are not bluffing and I don't think they're kidding and that we better do something for them. Uh, otherwise, uh, the, this country is going to change in ways you, you men are not going to be very happy with. And he said, I got further bad news for you. Because millions of people are out of work and because businesses have collapsed, nobody's paying any taxes anymore. The governments are bankrupt, city, state, regional, local, uh, federal. We don't have any money. So if, if we're going to do something for the mass of people, the government hasn't got the money to do it. And the only people who have the money to do it are you. And you're going to have to pay for it. But I, I urge you to do it because if you don't, there's going to be big trouble in this country. And you may end up with nothing to give anybody anymore anyway. Make a long story short. Half of them didn't like it. And the, the descendants of those people we call the Koch brothers today. The other half went along. They were scared. They believed that, that this was not a bluff. So they said to President Roosevelt, OK, uh, we'll let you tax us from here to tomorrow and we'll lend you whatever it is you don't take from us in taxes. Just leave us in control of the businesses. Don't take that away from us. OK, said Roosevelt. He was a good politician. He knew how to make deals. He went back to the unionists, the communists and socialists and said, I got a deal. I got the money. I will do something for the mass of people, but I don't want to hear another word out of you about revolution, changing the society, none of that. Do we have a deal? Yes, they said. The unionists, communists, and socialists, of course, there were a few dissenters there too, but in general, they agreed. In short order, Roosevelt goes on the radio, no TV yet then, and he says, I'm going to create the social security system, just so everybody understands. We never had that before. Suddenly, in the midst of a depression, when the government has no money, it announces a stupefying program in which everybody 65 years of age or older is going to get a check from the government every month for the rest of their lives, no matter how long they live. 
Before the ink is dry, he goes on the radio and says, I got another plan. We're going to create the unemployment compensation system. We had never had that in this country before either. If you get unemployed through no fault of your own, the government will give you an unemployment check every week for a year, a little more, a little less, uh, to help you through this hard time. The government had no money, apparently, but it had the money not only for Social Security, but for an unemployment program at a time when there were tens of millions of people who would immediately qualify. And finally, since I don't have a lot of time, he created the following. He went on the radio and he said roughly these words. If the private sector of our system is either unable or unwilling to provide jobs to the millions of Americans who ask nothing other than to have a job to work at, then there's no alternative but for me as president to do it. And between 1934 and 1941, Roosevelt created and filled 15 million jobs. Where did the money come from? Well, from the same place that the unemployment compensation money came from and from Social Security as well. He taxed corporations and the rich enormously. And what he didn't tax from them, he basically compelled them to lend to the government. And final point, because I can think your listeners will be fascinated. What happened to the politician who dared to do what nine-tenths of today's politicians tell you could never be done, that they will never do it? To do anything like this would be to commit political suicide. The president then, Roosevelt, taxed the rich, taxed the corporations, and used the money to help most average American citizens through a hard time. His reward, Mr. Roosevelt, was not that he was uh, destroyed as a politician. The obvious opposite. He was reelected three times to the presidency of the United States. He was, in short, the most popular leader the United States had ever had and has ever had since. The one who, under pressure from below, did all of that, taxed the rich for the average people. Well, as you can imagine, that was horrifying to a large part of the corporate elite and of the wealth in America. But they were even more horrified by what happened in World War II, when the United States became allied with the Soviet Union in a war against Germany and Japan. I remember one of my first memories is asking my father, going into a post office in Youngstown, Ohio, where I was born, and saying, who are those people, Dad? And pointing to a kind of poster over the window where you buy stamps. And the poster depicted Uncle Sam in his usual top hat outfit, arm in arm with somebody identified as Uncle Joe. And my father explained to me, that's Joseph Stalin, the head of the Soviet Union, and that other top-hatted guy is Uncle Sam, the kind of symbol of the United States. And we are allies, brothers in a struggle against fascism, etc., etc. Well, you can imagine rich people horrified not only by losing their money through taxes, but now with an alliance with an enemy of capitalism, etc., etc. When Roosevelt died, in 1945, and the war was over, those people vowed with all the energy and wealth they could muster to turn the clock back, to undo the New Deal of the 1930s, to undo the cozy relationship with the Soviet Union. And we had 
the Cold War. We had a period roughly from 1946 to roughly the turn of the century, let's call it 2000, since it's not really altogether over yet. But that period of time, everything having to do with the criticism of capitalism, with socialism, with communism, was demonized. It was all evil wrapped up with the Soviet Union, our terrible enemy, etc., etc. And you couldn't have a rational conversation in the United States. So that, for, for example, as a young man going to the university and saying, oh, I'd like to learn about the, our economic system, I was presented with a horrific litany of here, what we have in the United States is wonderful, 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 and has no flaws. And over there in the Soviet Union is something that is awful, 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 and has no redeeming qualities. Well, you know, you don't need to be a genius to recognize that this is not a serious conversation. And so out of that, I became interested in what's not being taught to me. And I learned that that was plenty and that there were mm. lots of smart people around the world who had figured some of this out. And in, in short, I became a critic of the capitalist system. And I've only become more so with the passage of time. First of all, let me say I wish you were my economics and or history professor in college. I might have paid a lot more attention. So thanks for that. But additionally, you know, I think one of the points you bring up is that, or maybe not, would you agree that between, say, 1960 and 1995, uh, capitalism was doing fairly well in comparison to anything we have ever known, seen, or been able to come up with? Well, not altogether. You're right that the period from well, even earlier into the... Oh, sorry, maybe 50s, yeah. Yeah, the 50s up until about the time you say, we had a period of pretty impressive uh, economic growth here in the United States. Um, we had pretty high levels of employment, or to say the same thing another way, pretty low levels of unemployment. We had growth in incomes, at least into the 1970s. Um, and yeah, you know, we look back on that now as a time when things were rather better. But if you literally mean uh, to identify the, the, the societies, the organization of societies that have grown the fastest, in other words, have developed from a relatively poor situation to a much richer situation, then hard as it is for Americans to, to understand this, the two most impressive examples in the last century are the Soviet Union and the People's Republic of China. Uh, let me give you the simple statistics. In 1917, when the Soviet Revolution happens, Russia is the most backward country in Europe. The majority of its people are illiterate. Uh, 90 plus percent of its people working on the countryside in unbelievably impoverished and backward conditions. On top of being so poor, in 1917, they were just coming off World War I, in which Russia was defeated. Then there was a revolution, 1917. Then there was a civil war, 1918 to 1922. Then there was the Second World War, so that you have a poor country decimated by these wars that were fought on its territory. And yet by 1975, the Soviet Union is the second economic superpower in the world after only the United States. 
And to say the same story again, starting around 1980, 1990, the People's Republic of China undergoes the same kind of rapid growth so that today the People's Republic of China is the second superpower, economically speaking, uh, after the United States. So for sheer economic growth, which of course is not the only way to evaluate a society, but if you use that metric, that way of measuring, then the United States experience isn't anywhere near the the top of the list right. in terms of how fast you go. And now, a quick word from this week's sponsor. If you're running an e-commerce business, Whiplash is your virtual warehouse. You send your products to a Whiplash facility so that when orders come in, Whiplash packs and ships them just like you would, but faster and cheaper. Leave the logistical hassle of order fulfillment to Whiplash and save money on shipping costs while doing so. Check it out. Holiday sales shouldn't be stressful. Next time, get Whiplash. Whiplash has facilities in Detroit, San Francisco, Los Angeles, and London. Listeners of Smart People Podcast take advantage because you can get a $100 credit when signing up at getwhiplash.com slash smart. That's getwhiplash.com slash smart. And now back to the episode. Well, and I guess, and, and that's interesting, but in a sense, in, in my fairly uneducated view, I just continue to hear, yeah, the, the you know, Republic of China, number two, uh, Soviet Union, number two. And in both instances, who is number one? United States. Therefore, our system's better. Now, I'm totally, I get it. You were talking about growth, and, and I understand that. And we don't even need to get into whatever that is, because I think what I want to go towards is as good or bad as what we declare capitalism to be or our you know, economy in the United States, it is failing rapidly. And I, I, that's kind of the area I want to move to and have you in, in your knowledge kind of define for us how you see it is failing us and why that is. Sure. Um, it's failing us along multiple lines, but I'm going to pick two to concentrate on. The first one is equality. I mean, after all, the last two or 300 years have been dominated by slogans that we need democracy, everybody has a role to play in making the decisions that shape our lives, that we want a good deal of equality, we don't like slavery because it makes some people very unequal relative to others, we want a kind of general equality before the law, we would like there to be a vast middle class, we don't want uh, many people at either the rich end or the poor end, we want us to be roughly similar in our incomes. And, and the fact of the matter is that democracy and equality are important virtues. They are values that people around the world have in common and that are serious. But using them, I look at capitalism and I say it's failing. It's simply there's no nice way to say this. Inequality in the United States has gotten steadily worse for the last 40 years. We are now rapidly approaching the kind of inequality we had at the end of the 19th century, robber barons and all the rest of it. We have a tiny percent of our people with enormous wealth and power uh, and a vast mass of people who have, can't uh, 
pay for their kids to have a college education, even though it's more necessary than ever to get a good job. Uh, people who cannot uh, eat properly, who cannot be housed adequately, if at all, et cetera, et cetera. So for me, one of the failings of capitalism has been its relentless polarization of societies into rich and poor. And only periodic upheavals of people protesting this situation stop it, or at least for a short time, reverse it. But sooner or later, the system once again resumes its drive to inequality. Two years ago, a famous French economist named Thomas Piketty published a book called Capitalism, A Capital in the 21st Century, where he showed in 600 pages of dense economics how and why capitalism generates deepening inequality and has done so wherever it has become the dominant system anywhere in the world for the last 300 years. For me, the inequality that divides our society into rich and poor, that creates the tension, the trouble, the animosity, the bitterness, the envy that does such damage and Lord knows we ought to be seeing it in our presidential election right now. And we should be seeing it in thousands of other manifestations. Let me just mention one. When you have a tiny group of people becoming absurdly rich, if those people aren't stupid, and they usually aren't, they know that they're vulnerable, that the mass of people is going to want to equalize things a little bit. And that the way for the mass of people to do that is the ballot, to use their numerical majority to win at the ballot box what they've been losing in the economy. And so the only way for the rich to prevent that from happening is if they use their money to control, to buy politics. We live in the result of that system because we now have a corrupted by money politics on top of an unequal economy. For me, I blame capitalism, and I think you have to change the system if you're ever going to deal with that problem, especially here in the United States, where we have spent the last century trying every law imaginable, every regulation imaginable to deal with inequality, and it just doesn't work. Right. The, the second flaw, I'm not going to stop, the second major flaw of capitalism is its stunning instability. I mean, I've already mentioned that we had a crash, global crash in the 1930s. Now we're going through another global crash in the aftermath of 2008. Uh, there's an institution here in the United States which uh, keeps track of ups and downs of our economy. It's called the National Bureau of Economic Research, NBER. According to the NBER, we had 11 economic downturns between the end of the Great Depression in 1941 and the beginning of what we're in now in 2008. 11 times that the economy suddenly tanked, millions were thrown out of work, jobs collapsed, businesses collapsed, some of them were short and shallow, other of these downturns were long and deep. Let me put it this way. If you lived with a person as unstable as capitalism, you would have moved out long ago or demanded that the roommate got some professional help. I always wonder why capitalism is tolerated by people when the instability is so cataclysmic in its impact on every facet of our lives. For me, capitalism's inequality 
and its instability are more than enough reason that an intelligent, open society would long ago have debated the pros and cons of capitalism, posed for itself the question, can we do better than capitalism, and not been afraid, as we have been here in the United States for the last half century, to honestly engage that question. I actually love the way you put that in that I do feel that there is a fear and and for those that aren't extremely educated in it. And when I mean extremely, I mean beyond college educated undergrad like I have, but up to your level to the fear is, well, we've all heard capitalism is the what is it? The, the best, worst system, blah, blah, blah. And right. so why rock the boat? And. Again, those people that have that voice can speak the loudest tend to be ones coming from that maybe upper middle class. So I like that fact that you say we're scared. And I want to get to, again, really, and given, you know, we only have 15 minutes or so, I definitely want to cover what you cover in your book, Democracy at Work, the solution to this. But I, I, there's a question that I talk about my, with my dad all the time. And so I have to ask you before we get to the solution is, how do we address this issue of technology, which is also forcing this gap? And so, for example, I just heard this statistic. I think it was there's 5 million. I'm just take that number for what it is. 5 million truck drivers in America. When we have self-driving cars, they're out of a job. You can't out. I don't know. Like you can't stop that progress. I don't think. And and so what is the answer? You can't just say, well, don't create these technologies. And that's one of the things that frustrates me the most when they say we're sending jobs overseas. Well, some of it, yes, but a lot of it is the technology is making these jobs irrelevant. You can't, in my opinion, complain about that. What's your stance there? I think it's a perfectly good question, and you're quite right. Many people are thinking about that. Let me respond as follows. The issue isn't whether or not you're for or against technical change. Let's assume that we all are open enough to say, gee, if we could get drudgery work like driving a truck or hammering a nail or whatever it is, if we could get that done by a machine, it would be wonderful for human beings not to have to do that anymore uh, and to go on to do things they would prefer to do. So I'm in favor of all that. But I think that the way capitalism works uh, distorts technology. And let me explain. Capitalism uses technological change for the purposes that capitalism as a system is organized for, namely to make more money, to make greater profits. That's the driver, as most capitalists will tell you. And the result of that is when technology is installed, a new technique, for example, it is used in a way that enhances profit, even if it damages other people. Let me give you a very concrete example. Suppose there's a, a, a production process, an enterprise, anyone, and it employs 100 people and it produces something and the employer sells whatever that is and makes a nice profit. Uh, he pays his workers. He buys his inputs. Everything is very nice. Now along comes a new technical change. Could be a self-driving vehicle. It could, it could be anything. And the workers look at it, and the employer looks at it, and the employer says, my goodness, I could get the same number of things that I produce now produced by 20% fewer workers. That is, with this machine, 
I only need 80 workers to produce everything that I'm producing. I will save the salaries I would have had to pay those 20 that I can now lay off. This is wonderful. He installs the new technology. He fires the 20 out of the 100 workers. He therefore doesn't have to pay their wages anymore. He keeps that money for himself. He sells the same number of goods at the same price he always did. And what he pockets is the extra profits earned by laying off 20 workers. Well, you can't be surprised that the capitalist wants technology because it's putting profit into his pocket. Mm -hmm. And you similarly can't be surprised that the workers are not happy about this situation because 20 of them are in deep trouble. They've lost their job. They've lost their income. They face all the social problems that go with that. So let me offer an alternative way of handling technology. Okay, great. Here we go. The employer and the, and the workers together have a conversation. The workers say, here's an idea of how to make use of this wonderful new technology. Instead of firing 20% of the people, you don't fire anybody, but you give everybody a 20% shorter work week. Everybody works four days, not five. Friday becomes part of the weekend. Since we are all now more productive with this new technology, with 20% less work, we'll get the exact same number of things produced that used to take all of us working full time, which is correct. So what then happens? Well, we have everybody working who worked before, but everybody works a four-day week instead of a five-day week. The same number of goods get produced. The capitalist sells them in the market at the same price he did before and earns the same profit he did before because he has all the same expenses. He pays the workers the same for four days that he used to pay them for five. He buys the same inputs. Everything is the same except one thing. The workers, 100 of them, have an extra day off to read books, to write poetry, to spend time with their boyfriends and girlfriends, their family, and so on. If technology were installed in that way, the mass of people would be very enthusiastic about it. The capitalists, though they wouldn't be against it, but they'd be much less enthusiastic because it isn't putting money in their pocket. Well, the obvious conclusion is, in a fair system, even a fair capitalism, you would have some midway point here, some point in which you would have the workers maybe not stop working a whole day, but maybe only half a day, and that might allow the capitalist to find a way to make more money. My point is this. Capitalism is the obstacle to technology because the very opposition of the mass of people to the way technology has been installed is really not an opposition to the technology. It's an opposition to the fact that capitalists have used technology to make money at the expense of people. There's no reason and no logic to fire 20 people. It's much fairer, much more logical to have everybody have a shorter work week that spreads the benefit of the technology around, doesn't limit it to the profit earners who are a minority of our population. If I were in charge of technology, I would not subordinate it to capitalism as has been done in the history of that system. Right. A couple of things then. How do you answer or, or what is your response to something like, well, 
that company has this fiduciary duty to its investors, which is straight capitalism. I get it. That's what it's built on. But a lot of the things that like that technology in and of itself wouldn't have been possible if it wasn't for the investors. So, you know, we need these people pumping money and say when a company goes public and they get this inflow of cash, which they desperately needed. And then five years later, they they've been, you know, not making profit all those years using that cash. And then they finally become profitable and all that hard work comes through. And the people who took the bet or gambled say, okay, now I want my return. And the CEO or board or whatever it is says, well, your return's going to be pretty low because we have people working four hour or four day weeks. How, how do we deal with that? Well, there are multiple levels of dealing with that. The first is just an empirical piece of information. Many of the most empowering, transformative technologies were not developed by private enterprise. They were developed by the government, Absolutely. by universities, yes. by the research done in those institutions uh, so that the notion that we have to give large profits to private enterprise to have research and technical change, that's a very nice argument invented by the PR departments in, of, uh, <laughs> of uh, corporations, but it, it's, simply, it's simply not the case. And the computer is a perfect example. It was developed in large part at MIT. It had to do with a whole other set of problems that were uh, interesting to, to thinkers at the university, et cetera, et cetera. And satellites as well, therefore GPS and everything that goes yeah, along with all that. Of that. Yeah, all yeah. Of, okay, all great, great. Number one. Okay. Number two, number two. There's a problem of, of thinking this through properly. Yes, high profits may lead you to invent something new. That can happen. But high profits can also lead you to repress research. There's a standard joke that every school teacher ought to use in his classroom. We knew how to make light bulbs technologically that last 100 years decades ago. Wow. The reason we didn't produce them was that the private companies involved in that business chose not to do something because it would hurt their profits. In order to make an assessment of what private capitalism does in the way of technological change, you can't only look at those things that came and say they came because of profits. You also have to look at what we don't have uh, because of that kind of situation where profits are taking uh, the form of preventing technical changes uh, of all kinds. We could and should have a public transportation system in the United States. Why? Because the automobile is the single largest cause of air pollution. The automobile is the single largest cause of death and injury to Americans through accidents of all kinds. They waste fossil fuel. They destroy the environment through, through the junk that they create. They waste resources. If we had a good system of public trains and trams and trolleys and all the rest, we would save on all of those things. We know how to do it. We have the technology, but we don't apply it in a way that would help the human race because it isn't privately profitable. General Motors and other car companies paid to rip up the, the tracks of the street railways in city after city across the United States in the 30s and 40s because by doing that, they enhanced the market for the profitable automobiles they have to sell. So you would have to do what very rarely is done, 
a really serious investigation of the relationship between profit maximization and technical change before arriving at glib conclusions that the one is a unidirectional support for the other. Wow, I, that pisses me off. I'm just angry right now. So, And I know you are too, because that's what Absolutely. you write about. And we, and we touched on it, this, this idea of the WSDEs, it's the work, Worker Self-Directed Enterprise. And we, we touched on that with the technology example is, right. is part of your solution. Tell us what that means. I mean, for, you know, and, and how are we going to do it? And you have about five minutes to do so. So, but, right. but, I, but I will say, and I want to, I want to get this in. Uh, it's very clearly laid out. If you have enjoyed this conversation, and I know you have, because I know our audience, I've loved it. Democracy at work, a cure for capitalism is really great. So with that being said, explain a little bit us to, to us about your solution. Okay. My solution is not mine. It's very, very old. It's a, it's a finding. It's a creation of the human race over thousands of years. It used to be called things like worker co-op or community labor or community workplace. I like to call it the democratized workplace, bringing democracy to the workplace. And what do I mean? It's really very simple that all the decisions that happen at a factory, at an office, at a store, whatever kind of enterprise you have, all of those decisions, what to produce, how to produce, where to produce, and what to do with the profits, uh, are made democratically. One person, one vote. The secretary, the factory worker, the truck driver, the supervisor, the manager, they all get together and they bring democracy to the workplace. They discuss, they debate, and they make the decision. I find it strange in a country that fights wars around the world to bring them democracy, that talks about democracy, every fourth word of every political speech, that when it comes to the workplace, we don't have democracy. We have a tiny group of people, the major shareholders. And let me remind you, 1% of shareholders own three quarters of the shares in our country. We have a tiny group of major shareholders. They elect the boards of directors and they make all the decisions what to produce, how to produce, where to produce, and what to do with the profits. We all work there. We all help make those profits, but we are excluded from deciding what to do with them, even though we live in the consequences of what these other minority decide what to do with it. I don't like it. I don't think it goes with our values, at least those we claim to, to hold dear to us. And so I want a democracy of the workplace. A democracy of the community where I live is well and good. But if we don't match it with a democracy at the workplace and a real one, then we're, not, we're kidding ourselves. We can't really be surprised that the tiny minority that has the wealth and the dominant power in the economy will not use it to do the same for themselves in politics. We live in the result. We know what the result is. Let's imagine in the minute I have left, oh, yeah. let's imagine a workplace which is run by the workers collectively. And suppose they discover that they could move the factory to China, where they could get away with paying other people much lower wages and make more profits. You think the workers democratically would decide to move? Not a chance. They're going to destroy their jobs, their income, their community. Not going to happen. The whole history of this country moving production out of the United States would have been completely different. They would have said, if we have problems, we'll solve them, but we will we'll not solve them by moving the jobs out of this country. Give you another example. If there's a toxic technology 
that will make more profit but pollute the air. The corporate leaders who live far away in a gated community with pure air piped in, they'll vote for it because they'll make more profit. But if the workers themselves did it, they know they're going to have to breathe this air. So will their husbands and wives and children and neighbors and relatives. They're not going to do it anywhere near the way a private capitalist would. And now the last and the biggest one. If we were a democratic workplace society, we would all get together to decide how to distribute the fruits of our labor, the profit we all help earn. And guess what? A democratic workplace where workers are in control, they are the directors themselves, collectively and democratically. They would never give a tiny number of people the 10, 20, 40, 60 million dollar a year pay packages while the average person there can't pay for their kids to get a college education or to have a decent life. They wouldn't pay everybody the same, but they would never do the kind of inequality that has been getting worse in this society from an already bad place for the last 40 years. That's why a change from capitalist, hierarchical, top-down enterprise organization to a worker co-op is a transformation long overdue. And now that capitalism isn't working for most people, it's a transformation whose time has come. I couldn't have said it better myself. And and listeners know, I agree with you. I'm trying to find the opposite argument because I know there is some. And so one more question. I know we got to go, but one sure. more question. You know, this idea, this is just one of many, but it came to my mind of we would have never moved production or things overseas to cheaper labor. But when do we have to factor in this idea of of greed or being cheap and this idea meaning like if we didn't transfer some of this overseas let's take i don't know iPhones right iPhones are $700 right now they'd be 2000 right and so even if we had higher wages would people be willing to pay that it is i don't know right or or food for example when you go to the store and you look at chicken and it looks like chicken and it's $4 for Tyson's and it's $20 for organic, you know, free range, etc. Almost everyone, although hopefully it's moving in the right direction, is choosing that $4 chicken because we're cheap and we need to save this precious resource of money. And so the companies, as a result, do what they have to do to lower those prices. And if that involves sending it overseas or doing some crazy stuff, they do it. So how do we do that if, as the consumer, we're not willing to incur that higher cost? Well, the way we do it now is we let those folks, let's say China, we let them live without caring a bit for the last 200 years in a level of poverty. Well, the only thing I can suggest, go get a novel by Pearl Buck, uh, one of the greatest writers about the Chinese situation. Uh, read it and you'll understand what abject poverty is if you've never known it. We let them sit there and wallow in it for decades where whatever the compassion was, whatever the Christian values we espouse here in the United States, with a very, very few exceptions, we didn't do anything. Now it's profitable for people to go over there and create some of the worst working conditions anyone has seen for a hundred years. We're going backwards. We're letting corporations go there who rip those people off, make them work in unlivable conditions. Uh, the factories burn down. It's a scandal every few months that we read on the front pages of our newspaper. We don't have to proceed that way. We could decide as a nation, we want to, to share part of our wealth with other parts of the world, to catch them up, 
since we bear some of the responsibility for them not being there in the first place. And that would be a, an act of solidarity, that would be an act of compassion, and that would make the world a much friendlier and safer place for all Americans. We choose not to do that. We, we go from nothing to a rapacious, profit-driven ripoff of those societies, creating new animosities on top of those that existed before. I don't find that a successful arrangement at all. And last point, we don't have to worry in capitalism beyond a certain point about our wages. And that's because of an irony. Capitalism is a system that drives each producer to think that his job is to come up with savings on labor costs, to either get more work done with less people or to get people you can pay lower wages to. When they do that, they discover, usually within a year, that they've got a whole new problem on their hands. Having successfully lowered the wages or having successfully done without some of the laborers, they don't have customers to whom they need to sell. Right. The right. worker who you don't pay is a worker who can't buy. Mm -hmm. Today in the United States, we have a limp and lame economic system because the mass of people cannot afford to buy back what they're hired to produce. And that's because a tiny number of people have a level of wealth that deprives everybody else of the wherewithal to keep the system going. As Marx, by the way, with whom we began, like to say, Capitalism is so full of its own contradictions that in the end, it won't be ended by something from the outside. It'll implode of its own contradictions. It produces its own grave diggers. All right, we'll end it there. Dr. Richard Wolf. this was fascinating. I mean, I got to be honest, I enjoyed this. 250-something episodes in, just such a great conversation. For those listening, where where can where else can they find you? The book. Let me clarify one last time: "Democracy at Work: A Cure for Capitalism." Where else are you? There's two others. I do a weekly radio program called Economic Update. It's available on podcast. It's available on the web. Uh, you can go to the two websites I'll give you in a minute, and you can find it there, or you can listen on your local radio station. It's broadcast in 71 markets. It's televised in Manhattan and the Bay Area of California. The two websites where you can find out everything we do, very simple. One is called R.D. Wolf, my name with two Fs, rdwolf.com. And the other one is, like the book title, Democracy at Work dot info i-n-f-o that's all one word democracy at work dot info both websites available 24 7 no charge all the stuff i do is there well thank you so much keep up the great work keep this revolution or whatever you want to refer to it as going because i think all of us especially in this political season are seeing what's happening and we're bearing the brunt of you know a lot of things we covered on this show so dr wolf Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you again for inviting me. And if you're so inspired, let's do it again sometime in the future. Absolutely. I'll take you up on that. Have a great day. You too. Thank All you. Bye-bye. Welcome back. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Dr. Richard Wolf. Don't forget, you can pick up his book, Democracy at Work, A Cure for Capitalism, at your local bookstore or on Amazon. And if you decide to purchase through Amazon, please do not forget to use our 
Amazon link located at smartpeoplepodcast.com slash Amazon. Any purchase you make through that link is going to come at no extra cost to you, and it's going to give us a nice little kickback. Don't forget, if you're looking for other free and easy ways to support the show, you can always leave us a review and comment over at iTunes. If you want to reach out to the show, you can shoot us an email at smartpeoplepodcast at gmail.com or message us on Twitter at smartpeoplepod. All right, that's it for me this week. Please make sure you head over to smartpeoplepodcast.com to see all the great episodes in the archive, sign up for the newsletter, and just stay up to date with all things Smart People Podcast. We've got some great episodes coming up even through the holidays, so please make sure you stay tuned. And we will see you all next episode. If you're running an e-commerce business, Whiplash is your virtual warehouse. You send your products to a Whiplash facility so that when orders come in, Whiplash packs and ships them just like you would, but faster and cheaper. Leave the logistical hassle of order fulfillment to Whiplash and save money on shipping costs while doing so. Holiday sales shouldn't be stressful. Next time, get Whiplash. Whiplash has facilities in Detroit, San Francisco, Los Angeles, and London. And listeners of Smart People Podcast get a $100 credit when signing up at getwhiplash.com smart. That's getwhiplash.com smart.